Hey everybody, this is Sarah Greger. I'm an emergency physician and intensivist at UCLA. Let's talk about shock. So this is going to be part one of a multi-part series on shock. And this is Reframing Shock, part one, the shock continuum. The reason that I felt the need to basically go back to the drawing board and completely redo all of my stuff on shock was basically because of this critical care curbside that I've given that I've been on the receiving end of many, many times. It goes something like this. I get a call from the ED and they're like, look, can I just run this case by you? I have this 47-year-old lady, came in with altered mental status, and she maybe looks kind of septic. Her blood pressure's fine, and her LV function looks okay on my bedside echo, but she's now gotten a total of three liters of IV fluid, and the repeat lactate went from 2.7 to 3.9. Dot, dot, dot. Yeah, we've all seen some version of this. And the problem is that I felt like my approach to shock just wasn't up to dealing with this task. It just wasn't sufficient to deal with so many of the problems that I was being confronted with on a daily basis. And, you know, if it's once every year that I have a problem that I couldn't deal with based on the way I was thinking about something, okay, fine. But if it's over and over and over again, maybe the answer is I need to come up with a different approach. So as we do, Answer, expensive technology. Maybe there's some new fancy thing that will help me think about shock in a way that's adequate to solve the problems I'm being confronted with. It turns out probably not. All right, plan B, maybe there is a fancy new algorithm, right? That's what we do when there's not a fancy new technology. We come up with a complex new algorithm complete with fun new metrics for us to comply with. Been there, done that, as fun as, um, you know, the one hour sepsis bundle is. Yeah, that's maybe not the answer either. So eventually I kind of concluded that maybe the answer was a little bit both simpler and a lot bit more complicated, which is that maybe the answer was I just needed to start thinking about shock a little bit differently. So this lecture series, Reframing Shock, is about how I've started to think about shock differently in ways that have let me deal with more of the problems that I'm being confronted with clinically on a regular basis. And most importantly, you know, we get into some physiology, this content gets dense, but I think the key thing for me is that this isn't just about like, let's get a PhD in physiology, or it's theoretically fascinating to talk about this stuff. Actually, me being able to reframe shock for myself and to sort of rethink my approach to shock at the bedside, I believe has actually made a difference in my ability to solve complicated clinical problems and do better for patients. So reframing shock part one, it's going to be in three sections. One, we're going to talk about how to think about the different phases of shock. Two, we're going to talk about identification of shock. And then three, we are going to talk about shock differential diagnosis. So let's start with the phases of shock. Now, the way I was taught phases of shock is that like, if your heart rate is this and your blood pressure is this, you're in this phase. If your heart rate's too less and your blood pressure is too more, I don't even remember what I was taught. I like memorized it for five minutes for some test and then forgot it because it just wasn't really useful. Those kind of definitions. 
here's how I've started thinking about the phases of shock. That's you and that's your patient. Your patient has ended up, due to some unfortunate circumstance, swimming in a river. And it's a pretty fast-flowing river. And unfortunately, that river ends in a big waterfall that goes off a cliff. Now, your patient is swimming as hard as they can because they don't really want to fall off the waterfall down the cliff, particularly. You don't really want them to fall off the waterfall down the cliff. And your job is to help them out of the water and rescue them and get them safely to shore. That's the idea. Now, your patient is swimming as hard as they can. But at some point, they're getting tired. They just can't swim anymore. So at some point, they just get tired and they can't keep up with that rushing water anymore. And they end up flailing. And they're getting closer and closer and closer to that edge of that waterfall. And at some point, off they will go over that waterfall. This, the patient who's still swimming, who's still keeping up, who's like freaked out and stressed and sympathetically activated because, you know, you know that feeling when you're like running a marathon and you're just really, really tired, but you're just, you can keep going. That, that right there is compensated shock. You know that feeling when you're on your last legs and you're so tired and you're just like, I can't do this anymore. I can't, I got to stop that feeling. That transition, that there is decompensated shock. Now, once your patient is in decompensated shock, they're no longer keeping up with those rushing rapids. They are getting closer and closer to the edge of that waterfall and over they go and fall off into end organ dysfunction. And if that free fall of end organ dysfunction is left unchecked, it ultimately ends up in death. The best way to think about these phases are not exactly in these strict stages that are discrete from each other. Rather, the way that I like to think about the differences between compensated and decompensated phases of shock is a balance. Really, it's a balance between physiologic stress and physiologic reserve. What do I mean by that? Well, when you are in a state of compensated shock, what is happening is you have a pretty significant ongoing physiologic stress, but your physiologic reserve is up to dealing with it. You're outpacing it. You can sort of outswim that river for the moment because you are performing at level. You're doing okay. Now, at some point, what happens is your physiologic stress outpaces your physiologic reserve. And now, once the physiologic stress overcomes your physiologic reserve, you go into decompensated shock. And so when I'm thinking about how these two things balance out, on the physiologic stress end, you got to think about your physiologic stress intensity. How intense of a stressor is this? How rapidly progressive is it? How major of a stressor is it? On the other hand, you've got to think about your patient protoplasm in terms of your physiologic reserve. Because the physiologic reserve of an 18-year-old guy may be very, very, very different than the physiologic reserve of a 90-year-old guy with hypertension and diabetes and heart disease and end-stage renal disease. Their physiologic reserve is like negative. But a healthy 18-year-old, they have some pretty solid physiologic reserve. And so they could be experiencing a really intense stressor intensity 
But because their physiologic reserve is so deep, they're kind of okay, at least for a while. Alternatively, my little 90-year-old with every medical problem known to man may actually go under with a relatively mild stressor intensity. Now, at the same time, I could take that 18-year-old who has an amazing physiologic reserve, but a super intense stressor. Maybe he's acutely bleeding to death from his aorta. There's some stressors that it doesn't really matter how good your physiologic reserve is. The stressor intensity will overcome it in pretty short order. But when I am thinking about physiologic stress, physiologic reserve, it helps me triage, actually. Because if I have a bunch of patients, I mean, like, I used to do more triage in the ED than the ICU until COVID happened, and then the whole ICU just turned into one triage. And I started thinking about it this way. You know, like, who needs my attention most? Well, what do I think is the degree of their physiologic stressor? And what's their physiologic reserve like? Balance of those two things helped me triage. Now, when I'm thinking about this, I actually turn this into a shock continuum. And so in a big picture way, I have this patient and some inciting event dropped my patient off in this unfortunate river. They are in this state of physiologic stress. And eventually, eventually, that physiologic stress will overcome their reserves and they will start hypoperfusing their tissues. If that tissue hyperperfusion is allowed to go unchecked, ultimately the end organs start getting super pissed off. You get some end organ dysfunction and ultimately result in death. And that's what I call the shock continuum. Now, it's important to think about this in some kind of temporal way. And the reason is because of this golden hour idea. Now, we always talk about the golden hour of trauma. We're all familiar with that concept, but the thing is, um, I'd like to modify it just a little bit because our, I don't know about hours, some amount of time, you know, the amount of time that you have that's golden depends on all of those factors and that balance between your physiologic stress and your physiologic reserve. So we'll just call it some amount of time and not just of trauma, but of shock or maybe most critical illness. But the point is that you have this golden period. And this golden period is the period before your patient falls off that waterfall. Because yeah, once you go into end organ dysfunction, you can still rescue that patient, but it's a lot harder. And, you know, it may not make the difference between them living and dying. Often these days it doesn't, especially if you have a good ICU who can sort of sort it out later. But especially in patients who don't have a lot of physiologic reserve, or in those patients who have a really robust physiologic stressor, it can make the difference between them walking out of the hospital and going back to their life after a couple days in the ICU versus them spending two months in the ICU and ending up traked and pegged in a sniff or ending up with some kind of chronic long-term sequelae that means that they just can't go back to their life. So it matters catching them early as possible matters to them. Now, there's another piece of this shock continuum. We, in fact, as physicians, are an active participant in this continuum. You have your own little spot. You even have your own little names. Um, here's the thing. We get a little confused about this, but it turns out that just because you're failing to notice something doesn't mean that it's actually not there. We actually have a name for this. So let's say your patient's in shock. 
doesn't matter whether they're in compensated or decompensated shock, but they're in shock. Now, they're in shock whether you're noticing that they're in shock or not. And if you're failing to notice they're in shock, we're having a sort of what we'd like to call an it's not you, it's me problem. Your patient's in shock. You're just not paying attention. Now, interestingly, we've actually come up with a name for this. We actually have a technical medical term for us failing to notice that our patients are in shock. It is called occult shock. Now, that sounds very fancy and very medical, but really what occult shock is, is your patient's busy being in shock, and the doctor is confused about the difference between hypotension and hypoperfusion, and is under the misapprehension that just because the patient is not hypotensive means that they're not in shock. Yeah. That means that we need to move on to the next section talking about identification of shock. Here's the thing. Shock is not about hypotension. Shock is about hypoperfusion. And unfortunately, they're just not the same thing. I think we all have this nice idea that if a patient's blood pressure is okay, it means they must be perfusing their tissues. That somehow blood pressure and tissue perfusion are linked together, so if one is good, the other must be good. It's just not the case. And more and more, in all kinds of different situations, we're learning that just because their blood pressure is okay doesn't at all necessarily mean they're perfusing their tissues, and vice versa. Their blood pressure may not be so great, and they're perfusing fine. Now, we're not going to get into the details about that right now. That is going to be in Reframing Shock Part 2 when we start talking about our three pressures mental model for shock. So for the moment, just take my word for it that blood pressure and tissue hypoperfusion, not the same thing. We'll talk about the details later. And for the moment, though, we're going to move on to continue with our shock continuum. Because here's the thing, even aside from the fact that blood pressure and tissue perfusion can't be considered to be equivalent, it kind of doesn't really matter. Because remember, the early stage of shock, that early nice golden period that you want to recognize, that is a sympathetically activated state. That physiologic stress state, those patients are sympathetically activated. Think about how you feel when you are like running or swimming flat out. You are tachycardic, you're diaphoretic, you're tachypnic, you're hypertensive. Oh wait, you're hypertensive. So yeah. Relying on blood pressure, even aside from the tissue hypoperfusion versus hypotension issue, relying on blood pressure is a great way to miss your golden hour. Because the earliest phases of that golden hour may in fact be masked by your patient being sympathetically activated. The most obvious example, the one we probably see the most often, is in our young healthy trauma patients, right? They come in and they're not activated as a critical code trauma. Why? Because they're normotensive. And they'll come in and they'll be tachycardic at 150 and hypertensive at like 150 over 90. And everybody's like, oh, great. They must be fine. They're normotensive. Except no. What's actually happening is they have a huge, robust physiologic reserve. They have this massive endogenous catecholamine surge because they're being super stressed. And so that's masking their true physiologic state. It's masking their hypotension. So you're just not going to see it. And we do this thing in trauma all the time where we're then like, oh, well, we can't give you pain medication because that could make you hypotensive. No, no, no. 
all we're doing when giving pain medication is revealing their true physiologic state, which is not a bad thing, by the way. I mean, we need to be prepared for it. We need to resuscitate for it. But, you know, we're just revealing their true physiology, that their sympathetic activation is masking their true physiology. And so that's why, even aside from the fact that hypotension and hypoperfusion, not the same thing, blood pressure is not a great way to best identify shock, especially early shock. So if that's the case, then how am I supposed to know when my patient is in shock if you're telling me that I can't use blood pressure? Never fear, I shall simply just use a lactate because obviously I will just check a lactate Ta-da! That will tell me if my patient's hypoperfusing their tissues, right? Wrong. Sorry. Turns out that lactate is not a magic number. Lactate is complicated. One of the reasons that it's complicated is that I was taught that lactate is elevated when you have anaerobic metabolism, right? Like when you have tissue hypoxia. You're not getting enough oxygen to your tissues. You're hypoperfusing them. Your lactate goes up. Voila! Lactate. Shock. Ta-da! No. Firstly, there is this pesky thing called stress hyperlactemia. So let's talk a bit about the biochemistry of stress states. So you have some endogenous epi floating around. Now, normally what happens is Epi's job is to be like, all right, we're going to activate the beta-2 receptors because if there is some stress going on, we want to make some more energy. So beta-2 receptors, let's activate them. And one of the things they do with the goal of making some more energy available is activate glycolysis. So they activate glycolysis. It gets upregulated and produces some pyruvate. Just bear with me. Just a little bit of biochem. Remember med school? Huh? Anyway, you get some pyruvate. Pyruvate goes into the mitochondria and it gets fed into the TCA cycle. TCA cycle does its thing and voila, you have energy via aerobic metabolism. Now, what happens if you all of a sudden have a significant physiologic stress? Maybe you're being chased by a tiger. Maybe you're septic. Maybe you're having a massive MI. Doesn't matter. You're having a big physiologic stress. Now, that big physiologic stress really, really gets your epi going. Your epi then really activates those beta-2 receptors. You really upregulate glycolysis, and that creates a lot of pyruvate. Now, that pyruvate gets fed into the TCA cycle, but at some point, the TCA cycle is like, I'm good. I have plenty of pyruvate. I can't use anymore. I'm good. I don't need it. Thanks, but no thanks. Well, you have all that pyruvate kind of floating around, what happens to it? It gets converted into lactate. And here we have stress hyperlactemia. Now notice, in this situation, you get an elevated lactate, but there is no anaerobic metabolism. There is no tissue hypoxia. There is no tissue hypoperfusion responsible for this mechanism of lactate generation. Stress hyperlactemia. And so because of this, we can't use lactate as a proxy for tissue hypoperfusion because that's not the only thing it's indicating. It could just be indicating that you have a stress response. Or maybe it's just indicating that you have a patient who's having an asthma exacerbation and you just gave them a million milligrams of albuterol and some epinephrine and just activated all of their beta-2 receptors a lot. And so now because of that, they have a stress hyperlactemia. Maybe that's all it's telling you. 
So we can't use it just to be like, oh, lactate, elevated, shock, done. Not so simple. But even aside from the question of whether you're getting hyperlactemia from stress versus true tissue hyperperfusion, we have another problem. Because you could be like, well, you know, if sort of physiologic stress and tissue hypoperfusion are on a continuum, then does it really matter why the lactate's elevated? Maybe it's telling me something regardless. Yeah. Turns out, even to that extent, we cannot rely on lactate to rule in or rule out shock. Here's an example of why. This was a study that came out quite recently. And this was a study that looked at a bunch of patients with septic shock. They were like sick enough, they're in the ICU, they're having end organ dysfunction. Nearly 50% of them had normal serum lactates. Sorry. So you cannot use lactate to rule in or rule out sepsis, unfortunately. I personally think that lactate probably at different phases of sepsis does indicate either physiologic stress and then maybe later tissue hypoperfusion, but again, you're not going to see it in all patients. So now we're at the point that you are hoping I will reveal to you that blood pressure is not the magic number, lactate's not the magic number, drum roll, the magic number is, and I'm sorry, there just is not a magic you know, we have been on this holy grail hunt for shock markers. Like, what's the number? What's the biomarker? What's the whatever it is that's going to tell us definitively whether somebody's in shock? And not only do we not have one now, I don't think we're ever going to find one. Um, there's two problems the minute we start talking about shock markers. Problem number one is what I call the I do not think it means what you think it means problem. This, a great example of this problem, is the issue of CVP. So everybody got all excited about CVP. They measured it, they did this and that and the other thing, and it turned out that we were using CVP to measure fluid responsiveness, but in reality, CVP has absolutely nothing to do with fluid responsiveness. So we can reliably measure a number, but that doesn't necessarily mean the number means what we think it means. That's problem number one with any kind of marker for anything. Problem number two is what I call the making the number pretty doesn't necessarily make the patient better problem. Now, this is a problem that we see not infrequently. Um, a great example of this problem is beta blockers in sinus tachycardia. It happens all the time that surgery interns, and I don't know why it's always the surgery interns, I think they really wanna make the patient's numbers look pretty before morning rounds. If a patient's been tachycardic too long, they sometimes just really want to give that patient a beta blocker. Now, if the patient just had cardiothoracic surgery and they're having a lot of ectopy, that's a unique situation. But, you know, in all other situations, giving a beta blocker for sinus tachycardia makes no sense. Why? Well, if somebody's in sinus tachycardia, you can make the number prettier by giving them a beta blocker but it actually hasn't solved your problem in any way, shape, or form. And you, in fact, may just have made the patient worse. We've also seen this in ARDS, right? In ARDS, um, you know, we used to give people 12 cc's per kilo tidal volumes. Why? Because it made the numbers pretty. It made their oxygenation better. It made their compliance better temporarily, at least until it killed people. So again, temporarily making a number look pretty doesn't necessarily mean that you've made the patient better. 
And so when we're talking about using markers to either identify shock or decide whether we're sort of goal-directed treatment of shock, it's really complicated. And no one number is going to be perfect. So I regret to inform you that there is not, and I don't think ever will be, a single test, metric, or score that can be used to definitively identify shock. Sorry. So if that's the case, what exactly are you supposed to do now? Well, be a doctor. Sorry, that's all I got for you. You got to collect and synthesize data. That's what we need to do. Now, fortunately, there's no need for fancy technology. The data that I'm telling you to collect and synthesize is not like, go insert a swan in an A-line and da-da-da. That's not what I'm telling you to do. Because one, in the ED, that's just unrealistic. But two, you don't really need to do that. Um, because most of the things that we can get that will help us put together a clinical picture that convinces us that our patient is in shock, we just don't need it. Because most of the stuff that we need, we can get simply from your exam, your labs, and your monitor. Now, we're going to go through a number of variables in these three categories that help you decide whether or not your patient's in shock. As we're going through these variables, I want you to think about them in the different categories, because some variables may indicate physiologic stress state, some variables may indicate tissue hypoperfusion, and some may indicate both. Then you also are going to have variables that may be suggestive of your inciting event, and other variables that may suggest inorgan dysfunction. Again, do I have a complicated single number answer for you? No. But... Is this the better way to do it that you're going to do better for your patients? Yes. And is it learnable? Yes. So let's talk it through. On exam, what are the most important things? Well, I think the first one for me is mental status. And I would say caution with the agitated patient. Big air quotes there with the agitated patient. So I almost made this huge mistake the other night where um, I had this patient, it was the middle of the night, um, and I'm at the Antelope Valley ICU up there. And, you know, of course, I have 35 patients, and I'm running around like crazy. And I get a call from this fairly inexperienced nurse, who was like, okay, this patient's really agitated. And it was this woman in her 50s who had a history of psych issues, um, who had a history of meth. And she was like, yeah, she's really agitated. And two times I made the mistake of being like, yeah, okay, she's agitated. You know, let me give her something so that she can sort of like calm down. Yeah, that was a mistake. Because eventually I come back upstairs after having seen some people in the ED and I walk by the patient's room and um, I walk by her and I'm like, wow, you failed the eyeball test. You look awful. And it turned out that, yes, the patient had psych issues. Yes, the patient was using meth actively, but that's not why she was agitated. It turned out she was agitated because she was in profound cardiogenic shock and she was about to die. And it turns out when people are feeling terrible, like they're about to die, they get agitated. Now, often, rather than saying, excuse me, ma'am, um, I feel very poorly and I feel all these symptoms. No. Why? Because in addition to all of the other things that they're not really perfusing, that includes the brain. So often these patients are not in a state when they can explain to you what's happening, they're often just really agitated. And the worse they get, the more agitated they get. So just beware patients 
with altered mental status. Sometimes it's agitation. Sometimes they're just kind of bleh. Sometimes they're mildly confused. But in the same way that you're hypoperfusing your kidneys and all your other organs, you're hypoperfusing your brain. And so just be thoughtful, especially in your psych patients, especially in patients that you're predisposed to just write off their agitation as a psych issue or a substance abuse issue. Yeah, they're super high risk. Beware. All right. Mental status. Now, work of breathing. So this one's a really important one. And this one is a physical exam thing, not a vital signs thing. Because the respiratory rate is not nearly as important to me as the accessory muscle use. So when I am worried about work of breathing, this is what I'm worried about. Now, if you watch this guy breathe, you'll notice that his respiratory rate is not slow, but it's actually not that fast, you know? Um, respiratory rate is actually a lot less important to me for a number of reasons. One, you can be having a panic attack. You can just be in distress. You can be in pain. But also, the lungs, those like stretch receptors and irritant receptors, have a direct line to the respiratory rate and cause you to be tachypnic. But when I see accessory muscle use like this, now I'm like, mm, I don't like that. That does not look good. Even if their respiratory rate's not that bad, I do not like how that looks. Maybe it means that they're just having a really bad metabolic acidosis and they're trying to compensate. Or maybe they're just working really hard to breathe because the fact that they're in shock and having tissue hypoxemia is causing them to feel short of breath. But when I see accessory muscle use, with or without tachypnea, it causes me to be worried. Now, the thing about accessory muscle use and respiratory distress is what I call the dyspnea masquerade of critical care. Often what happens is that patients in shock come in with dyspnea. Why? Again, their tissues are like, hello, we need oxygen, help. So, you know, your breathing is like, oh yeah, we should do something about that oxygen. That's a lung things, right? So the patient subjectively feels short of breath. They're tachypnic. They have excessive force of breathing, you look at them and you're like, yep, you look dysmic, okay. And then often, because of their shock, they also have a metabolic acidosis they're trying to compensate for. So yeah, both subjectively and objectively, you're like, oh, dyspnea. But if they're not actually having a lung problem or an airway problem, and the reason that they're having dyspnea actually has nothing to do with lungs or airway, it's because they're in shock or they have a bad metabolic acidosis, you can actually do them a great deal of harm by intubating them. Because intubating them probably hasn't helped their shock, but it's probably hurt their hemodynamics. So I'm very thoughtful about what dyspnea means and doesn't in the context of a critically ill patient, and I think about shock. All right, next, skin exam. Skin exam is incredibly useful in shock. Now, again, we have a continuum here. Diaphoresis, that's a physiologic stress state, right? When you're undergoing a physiologic stress, whether, again, it's running from a tiger or just, you know, not being able to breathe and having a metabolic acidosis and being an overwhelming septic shock, you get diaphoretic. Diaphoretic is bad. It makes me very nervous when a patient is diaphoretic. Think about when you're exercising. Diaphoresis, it's a late-stage thing, right? When you start exercising, you're not sweaty right away. You're first tachypnic and tachycardic, and then later you get diaphoretic. So I get really concerned when I see diaphoresis. 
once you've progressed into the tissue modeling, you're just like straight up hypoperfusing everything. And um, modeling is bad. There's some studies with like a modeling score. Here's my thing about the modeling score. To me, modeling is what I call a grandmother sign. I don't need a study to tell me that if my patient is grossly modeled, badness is happening. So like, just look at their entire body, look at their trunk, look at their legs. Are they modeled? If they're modeled, that's bad, right? My grandmother can tell me that. Once they're modeled, you are hypoperfusing your tissues. You are in big trouble. And that patient is heading towards the death part of that waterfall cliff if you don't do something soon. Now, one other thing I do on the skin exam is temperature. So what I'll often do um, is look at their feet. And I put one hand on their torso and one hand on their feet. And do I feel a big temperature differential? That's another thing that, again, just piece of data where I'm a little about it. Okay. Next, capillary refill time. So it turns out that when you are trying to figure out if your patient is in shock, your fingers are your friends. There are many useful things they do for you, and the first of which is capillary refill time. So this was a study that everybody got all excited about recently. It was the Andromeda Shock, I don't know what it stands for, study. Punchline was, they compared resuscitation guided by capillary refill time versus compared to lactate-guided resuscitation. And they found that capillary refill time-guided resuscitation was associated with a trend towards lower 28-day mortality. Now, what that means, I have no idea, because I think lactate-guided resuscitation is probably a really bad idea, especially if, to you, the lactate going up means you give more fluids. Why we do this, I don't know. Like, we think somehow the fluids are diluting the lactate. I don't really know. Point being is that I don't quite know what this study means because it assumes that lactate-guided resuscitation is a good, useful thing. And maybe we're just showing that lactate-guided resuscitation actually makes things worse. I don't know. Either way, for whatever it's worth, it's another metric I look at to tell me whether or not my patient is perfusing. It's easy. I can do it frequently. I can do one-to-one -one comparisons. I find it useful, again, not as the only thing I look at, but as part of a clinical picture. Next, urine output. So, urine output can be an extremely useful metric. If they get a Foley in and the nurse is like, I checked three times to make sure it was in because there was like nothing there, unless they have a dialysis fistula, that's probably a bad sign. It also can be kind of useful to trend whether your patient is improving, sort of. Because we have a caveat here, which is as follows. The kidneys are really dumb. They're smart in certain ways, but they're really dumb in other ways. And the main way that they're dumb, it's not really their fault. It's a product of how they evolved. Because to the kidneys, they believe that if they're not getting perfusion, it's because they don't have enough blood volume. Now, why is that? Well, at the time that the kidneys evolved, that was reasonable, right? Because back in the day when the kidneys were busy going through evolution, if a human was dying, it was probably because they got eaten by a tiger and were bleeding to death, or they had massive diarrhea and dehydration. Okay, reasonable assumption. Problem is, since then, we've lived long enough that we've developed things like heart failure and all kinds of other reasons that the kidneys are not getting perfused. But the kidneys still make this assumption that if they're not getting perfused, it's because they're not getting enough blood flow and they must be volume down, so they stop making urine 
even if they're the reason that they're not getting enough blood flow, is because somebody's in cardiogenic shock and the heart's just not pumping enough blood to them. So it's a useful shock marker for sure, but don't misinterpret a low urine output to mean that the cause of the shock is hypovolemia. And one other pet peeve I have about the kidneys, you know, when we're looking at urine output overnight, for example, it's another good like making the number pretty versus making the patient better issue. Because if I give somebody like enough Lasix, I can make it whatever I want to, basically. And here's the thing. The kidneys don't actually like Lasix or fluids. What the kidneys like is perfusion. So if you give Lasix or fluids with the idea that one of those two things will improve their perfusion to the kidneys, great. If you're just trying to make them make more urine to make the number look pretty, not great. So again, urine output can be a very useful marker, but be a little bit thoughtful with it. Next, labs. When I'm thinking about labs, I like to put them into two big categories. One, the category of labs that tells me that my patient is undergoing physiologic stress or having some tissue hypoperfusion. The second category are labs that tell me that the patient's actually having end-organ dysfunction. So, first lab that tells me about either physiologic stress or tissue hypoperfusion is lactate. Now, as we talked about, it could be telling you about either. And it's not going to be easy to know which one, but, you know, in some way it doesn't matter that much because there's a reason that we know that high lactate is bad. I mean, lactate is actually really, really useful. It's just not magic. And so what it means, high is bad. Unless you've just given somebody a bunch of meds like albuterol and epinephrine that may be making them hyperlactemic. That being said, I usually take it seriously if it's high, but I'm thoughtful about it. So, super useful number. What the trend means doesn't necessarily always tell you, but useful, but it can also be dangerous. And the main way that it can be dangerous is if we start using it to dictate fluid resuscitation. We'll talk about this more in um, the shock management cycle that'll come later, but Lactate and fluids, it's a really tricky relationship. People like see a lactate going up and it just makes them want to give more fluids somehow. Fluids don't dilute lactate. Fluids will only help your lactate if you believe that by giving IV fluids, you are either decreasing the patient's physiologic stress or improving their tissue perfusion. If your patient happens to be in florid cardiogenic shock and giving fluids is actually worsening their tissue perfusion, then it'll probably make the lactate worse. We also have been brainwashed to believe that there is some special relationship between lactate and septic shock specifically. And the number of patients I have seen hurt by that, I can't even tell you. I would say that the biggest thing if I have three pearls for you from this entire lecture series that are going to have the most impact on what you do in the ED, making a difference to patients, these would be the three pearls. The first is lactate does not necessarily mean sepsis. The second is lactate does not necessarily mean sepsis. And the third is that lactate does not necessarily mean sepsis. Lactate can indicate any kind of shock or a physiologic stress state. 
And when people see lactate and think, ah, lactate must mean sepsis, and start giving massive 30 cc per kilo boluses for a patient who is not at all in septic shock, harm is done. So if you only remember one slide, this would be the one. All right, so that's lactate. Next is base excess and bicarb. So metabolic acidosis is bad, right? Generally speaking, I get really concerned about a metabolic acidosis. And interestingly, we tend to get all up in arms about lactate, but just a stress hyperlactemia, especially with we're giving a bunch of drugs that can cause the lactate to go up, I'm actually a lot less concerned about that than a patient with a metabolic acidosis. And sometimes we kind of ignore the bicarb, like we just don't quite pay attention to it. But whether you're looking at the bicarb or the base excess, or I just look at both, I get very concerned if I have a patient with a metabolic acidosis, especially if that trend, that metabolic acidosis trend is worsening. It makes me very worried that that patient is starting to have some tissue hypoperfusion. Now, item number next is the white count. So along with our three pearls, I need to state something for the record that stress Leukocytosis is a thing. It exists. I checked. I promise. We see this all the time in trauma patients. They'll come in and their initial white count will be 15. Why is it because they got septic on the way to the trauma bay? No, it is not. It is because your body reacts to stress by having a leukocytosis. It happens. We see this postoperatively in the cardiothoracic surgery patients all the time. Their initial white count will be elevated. Why? Is it because they got septic in the OR? Of course not. It's because stress leukocytosis is a thing. So an elevated white count in your shock patient could tell you that the cause of their shock, that what precipitated their shock is sepsis and infection, or it could just be indicative of a stress response. So it's a number, but it can mean two different things. Next is your glucose. So just like stress leukocytosis is a thing, stress hyperglycemia is also a thing. We see this again all the time in the cardiothoracic surgery patients. They almost always end up on insulin postoperatively because it's such a huge physiologic stress to the body. Now, often what can happen is that um, they come in, and this you got to be really careful about this, especially in the DHA players where they'll come in and they'll have a gap acidosis and they'll be hyperglycemic. And we won't check anything else. And we'll be like, aha, they're in DKA and start giving them insulin. I had a patient like this the other day. I got sign out from the daytime intensivist and I go down overnight because like their gap's just not closing. It's like, oh, you know, like young person, DKA. So I get downstairs, but the, the gap's not closing. So I'm looking at the patient and I'm like, you don't look so good. So I send off a bunch of other stuff with their labs, including both a beta-hydroxybutyrate and a lactate. And it turned out that their beta-hydroxybutyrate was totally normal and their lactate was super elevated and they were actually probably in septic shock. And the septic shock had probably induced a physiologic stress response, causing them to be hyperglycemic. And then they had a metabolic acidosis from hyperlactemia. So stress hyperglycemia is also a thing. Now, this is another place where your fingers are your friends. They give you this very useful piece of information because just like how you can check your fingers for hypoperfusion based on capillary refill, well, if your fingers are getting hypoperfused enough that they have poor capillary refill, you know what else is not happening? 
blood is not getting glucose there. So sometimes what you can see is you'll have a patient and they'll come in and, you know, like there was another patient the same night came in and older guy, altered mental status came in and his initial lab draw was fine. On his initial BMP drawn off one of his veins, his initial sugar was like 150. Okay. I get a call later to admit him to the ICU, not actually for hypotension, but for hypoglycemia because he'd gotten progressively more and more altered. And the nurse, because he was getting altered, checked a sugar, checked a finger stick. And his finger stick was like 50. So they give him an amp D50 and they recheck it and it's still in the 50s. So they give him another amp D50 and they recheck it and it's still in the 50s. And this happens a couple more times. And um, I then get consulted for you know, refractory hypoglycemia and admission to the ICU for Q1 hour sugar checks. We then checked another BMP off a vein and his sugar was like 500 because he just gotten like four amps of D50. And it turned out that he was actually in florid cardiogenic shock um, and just was not perfusing his fingers at all. So again, sometimes you can see a low finger stick glucose. And if you see a patient with a normal glucose off a peripheral stick, but their finger stick is inappropriately low, I start thinking about shock. All right. You'll also now have some labs that just tell you about organ dysfunction. And keep in mind, all of your organs can have dysfunction. You know, your kidneys can go down, but your heart can also get kind of pissed off about the situation, right? Your liver gets angry. Lots of labs indicate organ dysfunction, but The point is, once I start seeing those, I am like, okay, we are in trouble. We are falling off that waterfall. And again, whether or not they're hypotensive and no matter what their protoplasm is, I am like, we are in a bad place. I need to move on this patient and be aggressive about figuring out how to fix the situation because that's badness. Next, monitor. Heart rate. So your patient is actively getting a physiologic stress test here, right? Like, what do we do when we have patients do an actual stress test? We have them run on a treadmill. Well, your patient's basically getting a stress test. So they can fail the stress test. And sometimes you end up getting these secondary things where you just get demand ischemia and your heart just gets kind of pissed off because they're running this stress test. But unlike in a lab stress test, when they're like, oh, no, no, you're starting to look a little ischemic. It's okay. Get off the treadmill. If it's a massive physiologic stress due to shock, yeah, you can't just be like, get off the treadmill. You actually have to fix the shock. So patients are often super tachycardic, except when either they have a sick heart and their heart just doesn't really respond that way because it's pretty sick in general, or maybe they're on a beta blocker. But even so, tachycardia, it's a thing. When the tachycardia goes away, I sometimes get even more worried because that means that their heart's sort of not really responding as it should to a stress test. All right, item number next, blood pressure. Okay, we had to get there at some point. And blood pressure is important. It's a thing. It's very important. I pay a lot of attention to it. It's just not the only thing. It's one thing on this long list of things. Now, in terms of numbers, contrary to popular belief, there is nothing magic about a systolic blood pressure in the triple digits. I actually don't really care what the systolic blood pressure is. I care about the MAP. So when do you care about a systolic versus a MAP? Here's my sort of general rule of thumb. If I'm worried about perfusion, I care about the MAP. 
If I'm worried about somebody bleeding, if they're having a subarachnoid or an aortic dissection or something like that, and I'm worried about bleeding, then I care about the systolic. I care about the highest pressure at any given point. But if I'm just thinking about shock and like, is my patient perfusing? If I care about perfusion, I want to know my map. And again, there's nothing magic about a systolic blood pressure in the hundreds. Okay, but like, actually, what's your blood pressure goal? There's not a magic number. I mean, we say map of 65 because we like that number. We like having a cutoff. Like, if your map is 64, you must be on pressors and go to the ICU. If your map is 66, you are totally fine and go to the floor. Now, that doesn't make any sense, obviously. Um, but in terms of a specific blood pressure goal, it's really not clear. As we'll talk about in the management sections and in the three pressors talk, to me, it's not so much what my map goal is. It's, do I think that I've optimized perfusion? So 65 is an okay place to start. There are patients, if they normally run super hypotensive, and I think that I've modified all of the other factors I can to optimize their perfusion, and I'm like, eh, do you just need a little bit more map that I'll target something higher? If a patient at baseline runs pretty low, like the liver patients, I'll be like, no, you just live in a map of like 55. I'm cool with that. But it depends on the patient and it also depends on the trend and it can be a moving target. So blood pressure, like lactate, super useful, very important map, run with it, but not magic. All right. SpO2 waveform. This is another time where our friendly fingers come to the rescue with our SpO2 waveform. So you may have noticed that it happens all the time that you'll get a call to be like, okay, better come in the room. Patient X is hypoxemic. And you'll go in and they're satting 60. Except their O2 waveform isn't really a wave, it's more of a squiggle. And so you don't really know what that means because it turns out that the way that you get an SpO2 waveform is by having, you know, pulsatile blood flow in the fingers. And if there's not a lot of blood flow to the fingers because you're, you know, hypoperfusing them because you're in shock, you're not getting the blood there for your cap refill, you're not getting the sugar there with the blood, and you're not getting that pulsatility, so you're also not getting your SpO2 waveform. And when you see that, when you cut called in to be like, the patient can't breathe, the patient can't breathe, because remember, these are the same patients that may have dyspnea because they're in shock, they're hypoperfusing their tissues, they have a metabolic acidosis they're compensating for, and now they're desatting. Often we do this thing where we're like, okay, well, the probe was on the finger. Okay, now put it on the other hand. How about the ear and the nose and the toe? When what we should really do is stop putting 17 different probes on the patient and check a blood pressure and maybe try and figure out if actually this means the patient's in shock. Now, conveniently, there is another more quantitative number that you can get next to the SpO2 waveform, so you don't have to be like, is it a wave or a squiggle? Which is called the Pleth Peripheral Perfusion Index. So, you may never have heard of this, but you should have, because the Pleth Peripheral Perfusion Index is a super useful number hiding in plain sight. It's hanging out on most of the monitors that you're dealing with, and you've probably just been ignoring it. Because fair enough, there's all kinds of other useless numbers on there, just ignore the useless ones. This one is actually useful. So, this is measured on the pulse ox, and it tells you a piece of useful information, or really two possible things. A low PPI is bad. Now, it suggests either one of two things, or maybe both. 
either that you have decreased cardiac output for some reason, or that your patient is super clamped down and they have elevated sympathetic tone. Like if they're super sympathetically activated and their epinephrine endogenously is going bananas and they're just super vasoconstricted, it can tell you that too. So it suggests one or both of those things. Now, what's the issue with it and what does it mean? Well, the issue with it and the reason that we probably don't talk about it more is that there's so much variability in the normal value. And that means that we can't really get a cutoff to be like, it's normal if it's above one, but abnormal below one. And we like cutoffs because it makes things easy. And we can't really do that because there's so much variability in the normal value. So I think that's why people don't talk about it as much, but I still find it a really useful number. In terms of values, again, tons of variability between different patients, but a value less than point. 3.2 usually means some kind of serious badness is happening that you need to address. But I actually use it much more like a trend because if I'm reassessing this patient with, if your patient is a complicated, shocky patient, you probably should be. It's yet another data point that I can trend to be like, oh yeah, no, I was thinking maybe shock, maybe not, but actually that's getting worse. Things aren't looking good. My interventions aren't working. It's another number that can be very useful as a trend. And again, would I use it as the only data point to hang my shock hat on? Absolutely not. But that's kind of the point of this whole exercise, that I wouldn't use any one of these things as a single data point to hang my shock hat on. And it looks like a long list, but at the same time, if you think about it, if you walk in the room, take a quick exam of the patient, take a quick look at the monitor, and then glance quickly at their labs, you can get all that information pretty easily. It actually doesn't take you that long. And so rather than telling you, ha, your definitive test for shock is right here, it's just not a thing. Instead, what you actually need to do is collect all the different pieces and put the whole picture together. But there's one more piece of this. Because let's say a magic number existed. Let's say there was a magic number that you could be like, if it's greater than 12.5, they're in shock. And if it's less than 12.5, they're not in shock. Let's just pretend that magic number to identify shock existed. Even if it did, it still wouldn't tell you why your patient is hypoperfusing. Knowing they are in shock doesn't tell you why. Now we move on to the final part, which is talking about why is my patient in shock? What's my differential diagnosis? Because once you have successfully identified that your patient is in some phase of shock, we now have another name for things, which is undifferentiated shock. And undifferentiated shock is not a reference to the patient, it's just a reference to the fact that the doctor is unsure of the underlying cause of the patient's shock. The way that I was taught a shock differential diagnosis, I was taught the traditional four categories of shock method. There are four different types of shock, distributive, cardiogenic, hypovolemic, and obstructive. And every patient should be stuck in one of those particular boxes. The problem is it doesn't quite work that way. Or at least we're learning it's not quite that simple. Because, you know, when the doctor's unsure of the underlying cause of shock, 
we tend to do this thing, which is a problem, which is we really like to focus, to anchor on the inciting event. And I get why, but there is a problem that's becoming increasingly clear in the more recent shock literature. And it is this, the shock precipitant and shock physiology are not the same thing. It turns out that the same inciting event can be associated with different shock phenotypes. So just because your patient, the thing that put them in that river, the thing that sort of precipitated their shock was infection, doesn't necessarily tell you exactly what that shock phenotype looks like. Similarly, if the thing that precipitated their shock was a massive MI, it doesn't necessarily tell you what that phenotype looks like. And so we cannot conflate the shock precipitant with the underlying shock physiology we are treating. We have to realize they're two different things. Two examples of some recent data that came out on this. This was a meta-analysis looking at right ventricular dysfunction in septic patients. Basically, meta-analysis of 1,300-some patients with sepsis and septic shock. They found that over a third of those patients had significant RV dysfunction, and it was clinically significant. Why? Because RV dysfunction in these patients was associated with increased mortality with an odds ratio of pretty significant. And so these septic shock patients, okay, maybe the inciting event was infection, but their underlying physiology may be more like cardiogenic shock with RV dysfunction. Conversely, this was a huge meta-analysis, uh, looked at retrospectively, looked at almost 9,000 patients admitted to the cardiac ICU for presumed cardiogenic shock. Many of them, it sounded like, did have cardiogenic shock. Interestingly, what they found was over a third of those patients had positive SERS criteria. Now, what SERS criteria mean? Nobody knows. SERS criteria probably have nothing to do with anything. But the more important point looking at the paper is that it seemed like a lot of those patients had more of a sort of almost physiology distributive inflammatory sers kind of underlying physiology. And that physiology in these cardiogenic shock patients was also increased with associated mortality, fairly significantly. So we're now saying that septic patients are going into cardiogenic shock and cardiogenic patients are having more of like a septic looking picture. What is happening? Well, that's the thing. It turns out that it's not quite so simple to say that we can predict the shock physiology based on the shock precipitant. And that means that this model, these four categories, starts to break down. Because this model only works as long as patients stay within their assigned box. You know, if they are septic, they have distributive shock. If they are bleeding to death, they have hypovolemic shock, and so forth and so on. And it's maybe not that simple. And this is another time where we take a starring role because we now run into another it's not you, it's me problem, where indeed our patients are in shock and they're in whatever shock physiology they so desire. And you dub them mixed shock. This is yet another name we've come up for our mental conundrum. We've sort of decided if we call it like an official medical condition, then it means that it's not our problem somehow. Because mixed shock... 
What do we really mean by that? Honestly, what I think we really mean by that is mixed shock is when the doctor can't make the patient's pathophysiology fit into one of the traditional categories of shock they were taught in medical school. That's, I think, really what mixed shock is. It's our view of shock being limited and conflating the shock precipitant with the pathophysiology. And so to me, that's why I had to rethink whether this approach really worked for me. Now, we have another approach, the tank pipes pumps approach. The advantage of this approach is that it takes a much more functional approach to figuring out why your patient is in shock at the bedside. Because basically this approach is all about an ultrasound based approach to figure out why your patient's in shock. The problem is this. Ultrasound is simply a tool that you can use to gather data. And if the only way you have to organize that data is to put it back in the same old boxes you were going to put it in in the first place, you haven't really gotten yourself very far. And you can really see how this plays out when we start talking about shock treatment, right? Because if you put your patients in these boxes, then it kind of limits you to the following treatments. If your patient is hypovolemic, you give them volume. Their distributive shock, you give them pressors. Cardiogenic shock, you give them inotropes. And obstructive shock, nobody really remembers what that is again anyways, and neither here nor there. But you end up in a similar situation with your tank's pipe pump model. Why? Well, if it's a tank problem, you give them volume. If it's a pipes problem, you give them pressors. And if it's a pump problem, you give them inotropes. With either of these models, once you've gotten to the end of those three things, you often end up in this, okay, what now feeling. And that is the feeling, those patients, that are the things that made me decide that I needed to start thinking about shock differently. The core approach that I've been using to organize my thinking around shock when I'm trying a different approach is as follows. And this not applies just to shock, but to a lot of different things, but I think it is particularly useful, or at least has been to me when I'm thinking about shock. What I find is in order to have an organized problem-solving approach that works for shock, I combine an iterative hypothesis testing cognitive approach with a robust mental model of shock physiology. Now, in this lecture, we're about to talk about the iterative hypothesis testing approach to shock. In the next lecture, in Reframing Shock Part 2, the three pressures model, that's when we're really going to delve in to our robust mental model of physiology that we need to use within our iterative hypothesis testing approach to come up with shock conclusions. So, iterative hypothesis testing, what am I talking about? It's the idea that rather than being like, okay, we are going to choose a box, a category of shock to put that patient in, and then they are in that category from now on, the end, call it a day. It's not so much a diagnosis of you are distributive, you are cardiogenic. More, it's a process. And that process starts with gathering data. Then, based on the data that you've gathered, you are going to form and or revise your hypothesis Based on your current hypothesis, you're then going to adjust your management. You're then going to gather follow-up data. Then based on that data, revise your hypothesis again, adjust your management further, rinse, repeat, off, you go. It's a process, not a diagnosis. So each step in turn, gathering data, 
Well, this is what we just spent quite a bit of time talking about, right? It's not just one piece of data. It's not just one test. It's looking at all of these things and assessing them and reassessing them, looking at the trends. And the nice thing about using not just one test is it's so much more robust because if for some reason your patient is really abnormal on this particular metric or you can't get this particular metric, it's okay because it's you being a doctor, being smart, being thoughtful, and putting a whole clinical picture together. And it gets easier once you can reassess and reassess your patient because trends can be so much more meaningful than individual numbers. All right, so you've gathered yourself some data. Now you're going to revise your hypothesis. What do I mean by that? Well, I have some very specific shock hypothesis revision queries that I go through. So I gather some data and I'm like, mm, no, this doesn't look good. My patient is not doing well. They're not getting better. If they're getting better, great. Your hypothesis may in fact be true. Do what you're doing. If they're getting better, great. Fantastic. Pat yourself on the back. But if they're not getting better or it's just not quite fitting, you're not sure what's happening, then ask yourself these questions. Question number one, am I adequately offloading their physiologic stress? Is it maybe that, yeah, they truly are in hypovolemic shock and I've given them some fluids, but just not enough fluids? Or yeah, they truly are in cardiogenic shock, but I just need to give them maybe some more inotropes. Have I adequately offloaded the physiologic stress that they're undergoing? Two, have I fully identified and distressed the shock precipitants? So I think that what's precipitating their shock, again, not to be confused with their shock pathophysiology, but whatever incited the shock, whatever stuck them in that river in the first place, if I think it's infection, okay, they have urosepsis. But wait a minute, did I check for an obstructing stone? Or maybe they just get frequent UTIs and actually I totally miss the fact that they have cholangitis because they just also happen to have a UTI. Do I need to give them a broader antibiotic? Do I need an antifungal? Am I fully addressing the precipitant of shock? If it's not sepsis, have I found the source of bleeding? Is there another source of bleeding? Did they develop a tension pneumothorax? What's going on? Did I fully address my precipitants? Question number three. Did I identify the shock etiology correctly in the first place? Did I think that they were infected and having a distributive picture with septic shock? Is that what I decided? But actually, I was totally wrong, and they're actually in cardiogenic shock, and I just totally missed the boat. Or, you know, maybe I missed the boat because they are bleeding to death, and I thought they were in cardiogenic shock because they have a history of heart failure, but they also are on Pradaxa for their AFib, and now they're having a massive bleed. So do I need to go back to the drawing board and start all over again? Because maybe I'm just on the wrong track and I did not correctly identify the shock etiology. And lastly, did an additional shock etiology develop? Because patients are allowed to have more than thing wrong with them. You know, like they can come in and show up and be in shock for one reason and then have a totally different thing happen to them. I like to call this Murphy's Law of Resuscitation, which is as follows. The more things that have gone wrong, the more things that will go wrong. The sicker your patient is, one, the more just endogenous complications they're going to develop, you know, 
maybe they started out with a septic picture and then they got distributive, but then actually they developed some horrible RV failure and now they're developing fluorid cardiogenic shock. That's their real driving pathophysiology. Or maybe I just gave them massive amounts of fluid and drowned them into some kind of cardiogenic shock. Or maybe I put in a central line and did a procedure to them and now they have a tension pneumothorax. Because the more things that happen, the more complications that develop, the less well the patient's able to tolerate the complications, the more things we do to the patient, the more iatrogenesis develops. So patients can and will have more than one thing wrong with them. And so if your patient's not getting better, and you're pretty sure that you've identified and addressed all the correct causes of shock that they came in with, start looking for some new ones. Now, once you've gone for your hypothesis rescission queries, item number next is to adjust management. Now, that we're going to talk about in the next part. Because in order to adjust management, you really need to start to understand your robust mental model of physiology. And so in the next series, we are going to talk about our mental model of physiology. And ultimately, finally, we're going to go through a series of cases that combine this iterative hypothesis testing approach with our robust mental model of pathophysiology to come up with treatment strategies. So that brings us full circle to the shock continuum. I think that to really do best for our patients, we need to start thinking about shock differently. When we're thinking about the phases of shock, we need to start thinking about compensated shock as this sympathetically active state where your physiologic reserve is overcoming your physiologic stress and decompensated shock now is where the physiologic stress is starting to exceed the patient's physiologic reserve. There's a continuum where you have this inciting event that puts the patient in that shock-raging river rapids in the first place, and then there's this continuum of worsening physiologic stress, ultimately evolving to tissue hypoperfusion, end organ dysfunction, and death if left unchecked. Your job is to identify that your patient is in that river in the first place and figure out what you need to do to address the exciting event, to relieve the physiologic stress, correct the tissue hypoperfusion, and ultimately try and help them out of the river to the other side. When we're identifying shock, unfortunately, there is just no single magic number. There's not now, and I don't think there ever will be. Instead, you just need to do thinking and collect some stuff that's not that hard to get from exam, labs, and the monitor, and put the whole picture together, both in your initial assessment and in a trend. And then finally, when we're thinking about our shock differential diagnosis, why is my patient in shock? What's causing it? This sort of putting patients in these strict traditional boxes, I don't think is the way to go. It limits us in so many ways. Rather than saying, aha, you are in this box, I think the way to go is actually more of a process, an iterative hypothesis testing process, where you're gathering data, revising your hypothesis, adjusting management accordingly, and starting all over again. In terms of thinking through that hypothesis, the key questions, if things are not going well, I believe are one, am I adequately offloading the physiologic stress? Am I adequately addressing the shock precipitants? Am I correctly identifying the shock etiology in the first place? And did some other shock etiology develop? So that concludes part one of Reframing Shock, where we talked through the shock continuum. In the next part, we are going to talk through our robust physiologic model of shock, which we are going to reframe as three 
pressers. Thanks for listening.